0: So we're into Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three deals with the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who is sent by the Lord to prepare the people of God for the coming king. Just recently we were, we were glad to receive the president here in the city coming to show solidarity uh, with us as a city with all of the things that we've been going through recently. And uh, I spoke to a few people who met him personally and uh, they showed me photographs. And uh, the first thought that came to mind was, I wonder if they dress like that every day. <laughs> because wow, did they look like they had got themselves all polished up, bright and shiny. And of course, that was entirely appropriate, Their best tie their best shirt, and they were just the women. (laughs) And so here here was this thought about getting a preparation for someone important coming Uh, back in England, uh, where I come from. Occasionally, you'll have a royal visit. It may be that you get the queen or, or one of the royal family. And it's interesting to see how preparations are made in the town. Flowers are planted that are special and streets are cleaned in a, in a particular way. And um, on some occasions, particularly if it's been a long time since they've had a royal visit, they'll go to even greater extent in their preparation. Uh, I can remember on some occasions uh, my dad telling me that um, when they had a royal visit, they would paint the rocks on the roads that the queen was traveling along so that the rocks looked good. (laughs) And on one occasion, only one occasion that I know of, because it had been a particularly hot summer that year and the grass had died, they actually painted the grass green. (laughs) See, this this is what you do when you have a special visitation. Jesus says when he's weeping over Jerusalem, you have not recognized the time of your visitation. I wonder whether we're ready today for a visitation of God upon ourselves individually, upon our friendship group, upon our family, upon our house church or our church. Let's read from Luke chapter three. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysantius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went out into the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So here is John bringing a message of preparation. The big big message of preparation is simply this, that the king is coming and we need to get ready. And he's the king of glory, he's the king of holiness, he's the king of the universe. In unapproachable light we find him, and yet the one who dwells in unapproachable light is coming to us. And so we prepare ourselves for that reality, for that eventuality. And the way we do that is, we say the ways in which we have wandered so that the paths that we followed are crooked, we make them straight again. Where valleys have been formed in our lives, where we found ourselves falling into the darkness of doubt, the darkness and the dreariness of depression. We choose no longer to dwell there, no longer to expect to live there, but to look and to anticipate something different. And where our lives have been, have been captured by vanity or pride, where our, where our lives have been, have been built up into mountains of our own success and perhaps idolatry, then we bring those low, and we make a level place to meet the Lord. So there's the general word. This week, do you find yourself in a valley saying, one more killing, how many more will there be? Do you find yourself perhaps anticipating great things in this new season, new season in your family, in your business, in your influence and perhaps have gone beyond a celebration and a praise to God and have begun to perhaps glory in your own capacity. Is there a place where you need to bring down that mountain? Have you wandered? So often, summer is a time of wandering What is it that the Lord is saying to you about this general word of preparation? Because here is the truth. Since Jesus came to redeem us, he waits standing at the door of our life, longing to bring a visitation. And such a visitation could be utterly transformative for us. In fact, if we embrace the visitation as it's intended, it will always be utterly transformative for us. But perhaps you're comfortable. You read your Bibles, you come to church, you're kind to children and animals. What more could the Lord possibly ask? What is it that God is saying to you today by way of preparation? If the Lord is standing at the threshold ready for a visitation, are you ready to welcome your royal visitor? To really get a hold of what it is that John is saying, there are five key words, word pictures, that we need to kind of get a hold of. And so I'm going to look at each of those word pictures. Sometimes we read these words and we forget that they're intended to be revelatory. They're intended to be insightful. They're intended to to capture our hearts and minds as as we think about, as we ruminate, as we reflect on what they might mean for us. These five words are word, voice, water, wind, and fire, word, voice, water, wind, and fire. We're told right here in the, in the beginning of this passage that John hears the word of the Lord in the desert. There's speculation as to where it was that, that John lived, but, but to live in the desert where he baptized people meant that you had to be close to water. Obviously, you have to be close to the River Jordan, which is, only, which is the only real source of continuous water in that region, and perhaps he lived in community with the others who were longing for and waiting for the coming of the king. There were communities who gathered in that place, in that region, who were looking for the things that John was looking for. Perhaps. Perhaps he was associated with those communities. We really don't know, but we do know that when he was in the desert, the place of extremity, the the place of difficulty, the place of greatest vulnerability, it was there that the word came to him. And how would the word come? We've been been thinking in these last few weeks what it's like to embrace as the people of God the call to be a prophetic people. On the day of Pentecost, Peter tells us that what used to be the call of particular individuals is now generalized to all of the people of God and as the Holy Spirit comes upon each of the people of God, young and old, male and female, they hear the voice of the Lord and they prophesy. Paul tells us as we said just I think last week that we're to eagerly seek all of the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So what is it then for John to hear the word of the Lord? Some imagine that the only way that that could possibly be is if you hear an audible voice. And certainly, when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the Bible as a whole, it's quite clear that God speaks with an audible voice on, on some occasions. In 1 Kings 19, when, when Elijah, the great symbol of the prophetic ministry throughout the whole of the Old Testament, is there on the mountain of the Lord. The Lord passes by. But as he's passing by, he speaks to Elijah with a still small voice, a gentle whisper, a low murmuring within the overarching silence would be perhaps the way that you, would, that you would translate those words. The Lord speaks with a gentle whisper. But the other prophets of the Old Testament, they had other ways that God would communicate with them and this is to be understood. God has created us for himself. And that creation means that you and I are created to communicate with God and God to communicate with us. And clearly, he has created us as a whole being to be holy in connection with him. And so it is that Ezekiel, and it's all the way through the book of Ezekiel, but I'm thinking right now of Ezekiel 36 verse one, where Ezekiel speaks of a feeling when God is speaking to him. God is impressing something upon him. This impression, he says, feels like the heavy hand of God upon him. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. What was that like? Well, maybe you know what that's like because you've had this internal pressure. You've had this sense, this impression upon your life that God is trying to say something. God is communicating something to you. And so God, by His His grace and goodness, is communicating with us at every level of our being. He speaks, he impresses, and then he does something else. Jeremiah in in chapter 18 and in other parts of the book of Jeremiah is clearly a prophet who God reveals things to when he sees things in the world. It may be that he sees a, a basket of figs or on this occasion, he's there in the potter's house And there's the potter at his wheel with the clay. And as he watches, the Lord speaks to him through what he sees. Now it may be that you're unfamiliar with listening to the word of the Lord, but of course he is wanting to communicate with you all the time. The audible voice, the impression of his word upon you and the revelation of what it is that you see that he somehow captures and reinterprets to you so that you see it afresh. All of these ways are ways that God speaks to his prophetic people down through the centuries. But the interesting thing is this. The interesting thing is this. As soon as the word has been released, then you have a voice. The word of the Lord comes to John in the desert, and then, John becomes the voice. It's impossible to hear the word of the Lord and not share it. As soon as you hear the word, you become the voice. And the voice is the voice that communicates what's being said to the person with the voice. It's not an echo. I'm delighted when people write to me and send me notes and say, that was very helpful and I've shared it with my friends and all of that. It's great, I love that. It's way more important that you share what the Lord has spoken to you rather than what Mike Breen spoke about on Sunday. You're called to be a voice, not an echo. St. Augustine, in the 5th century, just at the beginning of the 5th century, 401, 2, 3, 4, around about that time, was, was creating a commentary on the New Testament. He was, he was looking at John's Gospel. Uh, Augustine is the same person as Augustine. Yeah? It's just, it's just different emphasis on the syllable. So here's Augustine. Augustine, and he's looking at the the first chapter of John that talks about the word of God, and it talks about John the Baptist in that first chapter. And and he says this, Augustine, when he's looking at it, he says, he says, the voice would just be a series of inarticulate noises, just mumbling, if it had not got the word. The word comes before the voice. In his language, Latin, he says, the verbum comes before the vox. Vox and verbum, says Augustine, is what we need to wrestle with. We are called to be the voice, the voice of the word, the word which is revealed to us in so many different ways is fully and finally expressed to us, giving us a filter for what it is that we're hearing in the written word, but of course, finally and perfectly in the person of Jesus. So there is a word and there is a voice. And then John goes on to say, as the people are speculating as to who he is, he goes on to say this in verse 16. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now earlier in this presentation, John the Baptist has spoken to the crowd saying that the ax is already laid to the root and the unproductive trees will be consumed in the fire. And here he says Jesus baptizes with fire. And if we look at the the Bible as a whole, we see see that this word fire is something with an enormous breadth of meaning. And so as we, as we move towards that, just be aware of the fact that, that there may well be new ways to understand this meaning of the fire of the Lord. But before we, before we venture into that particular territory, let's make sure that we hear what John is saying and what the Lord is saying to us about the water and the wind. John the Baptist is there to baptise the people as a symbol of their repentance. Water throughout the whole of the Bible is a symbol of cleansing. At the time of Jesus, people would have great bathing pools in the homes, particularly of wealthy people, that would have a continuous flow of water. It was called the mikvah bath, outside of the temple on the south side. Today you can still find hundreds of places where people could be baptised, be cleansed on on a regular basis as a symbol of their repentance. So this was a familiar picture to the people of Israel at the time of John and of Jesus. And they understood absolutely that what John was calling them to was a time of cleansing. But water is, of course, something that brings refreshing Peter, when he's speaking to the crowd in the temple in Acts chapter three, says, this is for you and for your children for a time of refreshing. And of course, here he is in the desert. And what more obvious a symbol of the power of water than standing in the desert? The water revives. Where there is literally no evidence of life, When there's water, we see amazing things. I lived in Arizona with uh, Sally when we first came here 15 years ago. And there was a moment when botanists from all around the world were booking flights to Arizona. I think it was about 2006, maybe 2007, and there were unusual weather circumstances through the winter, such as the winter is. I mean, you know, it gets down to maybe 80. And, um, and there in the, in the winter months, there was this remarkable confluence of circumstances that meant that flowers that had not bloomed for 150 years bloomed in the desert. And it was stunning to behold. Purples and yellows and oranges and greens for as far as the eye could see. And when I say as far as the eye could see, they carpeted the entire desert right up into the mountains. And it was simply because the rain came at that moment when it never normally came. Water gives life But the interesting thing about water is that the the way that water works is on the outside of the body. John says, the one whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie, he has a deeper and greater baptism for you because my baptism is, yes, a symbol of repentance that's taking place inside of you, but all of the symbols are on the outside, but this one, This one that I am introducing to you that I'm calling you to prepare for will baptize you in the holy wind, in the holy breath, in the holy spirit. Water, wind, and fire sounds like a rock band of some kind, doesn't it? I know it's earth, wind, and fire, it's all right, yeah. I know I'm supposed to be religious and detached from the real world, but I've got some of that stuff. The one who's coming will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Spirit, wind, breath is the same word both in Hebrew and Greek. What's it like for the holy wind, the the breath of God to come upon you? Well, of course, it cleanses. When the wind came on the mountain, when Elijah was on the mountain of the Lord, the wind came and stripped the surface of the ground, the cleansing presence of the wind in the desert. But of course, the wind refreshes. You can have a wind from the desert that desiccates and dries up, or you can have a wind from the ocean that refreshes and and causes you to feel alive. And then of course, the wind, the breath, gives life. But the difference is this, it happens on the inside. It happens on the inside. When God breathes His life into you, He brings cleansing on the inside. When, when God causes His breath to come upon you, it refreshes and revives you on the inside. And yes, of course, it will touch the outside, but it touches places that the water can never reach. And so the water and the wind have similar similar realities, except one is a deeper work. It's quite clear from Scripture that everyone who knows and loves Jesus has been filled with the Spirit. And yet, the Scripture encourages us to be open to the refilling, the continuous filling of the Spirit because we need continuous cleansing. We need continuous refreshing. We need continuous revival. So what of this other word? The word that perhaps is the most complex. The word that perhaps causes us greatest challenge. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. What does John mean? What does Jesus mean when he quotes exactly the same words speaking to his disciples? Well, it's a fascinating thing. When you look at the, the, the idea of fire throughout the Bible, it, it, it gets associated with lots of different things. It's obviously associated with the presence of the Lord. In the first redeeming covenant, that Abraham and Sarah are called into with God in Genesis 15. God is portrayed, is is visualized, is symbolized as, as a burning torch and a smoking fire pot. So the fire is the symbol of God's presence. And when in chapter 22, Abraham takes Isaac in obedience to the Lord to, to sacrifice him on an altar, it's Abraham who carries the firepot, the symbol of the presence of the Lord. And of course, that presence of the Lord is symbolised in the pillar of fire that we see in the next book of the Bible in Exodus, and especially in Exodus 13. And we see that the, the, the fire of the Lord The presence of the Lord can sometimes be a protection. The the pillar by by night and the cloud by day come behind the people of God and protect them from the pursuing Egyptians. And maybe this is what's in the mind of Zechariah when he says in chapter two, I'll set you within a wall of fire. So fire is the presence, fire is the pillar, fire is the wall, fire is the lake. There's a lake of fire in the last book of the Bible, into which the devil and his minions are cast as judgment. What does all this mean? Can fire mean all of these things? Well, if you step back a little, just ask yourself, what's common to all of these pictures and the other pictures that say, the tongue is a fire that sets whole communities ablaze, what, what is it? Well, here's the thing about fire that is amazing and unique. Fire both attracts and repels at the same time. This is true of any word picture of fire that you find throughout the whole of Scripture and any metaphorical use of fire in our life. Fire always does two things. It attracts and repels. So just the other night, we had a few leaders around to my house looking at the next learning community immersion for the training of the house church shepherds, and we're all in our living room, and across the road, a guy was burning the stump of a tree. I didn't know what he was doing, I've, I've been over there to have a look, you drill holes into it and you put some kind of flammable fuel down the hole, I guess it's kerosene or paraffin. I'd like to put petrol down there but I'm not sure you're allowed to. <laughs> Gasoline, you know, it's probably blow the neighborhood up. But it, it, and he, he, he lit it and from our living room you could see the flames. And what was interesting was the neighbors came to visit, the neighbors all gathered round. Here's this stump on fire, and the neighbors all gathered, because fire attracts, but here's the thing, nobody was stood in the middle of the fire, (laughs) because fire repels. So fire will always attract, and it will always repel. And so it is that this is an image that is so frequently used in Scripture. What would it mean of the Lord? This is the perhaps the biggest picture of fire in the Scriptures. What would it mean of the Lord? Well, it would mean this, that the Lord attracts us by His beauty and by His grace, by His mercy and His kindness, and of course, we come close to Him. But as we come close to Him, What begins to be exposed in us is the fact that he is holy and we're not. And so as we draw near, we find that the repulsion of the flames increases and we don't feel as though we can get any closer. He is a consuming fire, says the writer to the Hebrews a consuming fire. So if I came close to him, attracted by his grace and mercy, what would be consumed? What would be left? And so there's naturally a kind of contest within us as we're seeking to get closer to the Lord, and yet we're having to deal with the things within. Likewise, with the other, the, the other great kind of area in which fire is used as a metaphor in Scripture, sin. What's sin like? Well, sin is incredibly attractive. It draws us to it. We find ourselves warmed by its presence, and yet we find that as it draws us in, it consumes us. And how could it consume us? Why are, we not, why are we not repelled by the idea of being consumed by sin? Well, Paul makes it very clear to us in First Timothy chapter 4 when he's writing to his young friend. He says, people who have pursued sin have their consciences seared. Seared. If you stay around the heat long enough your sensitivity is reduced. And the searing of the heat of sin will cause you to allow the attraction of sin to draw you in until you are completely consumed by it. So what are we to do? These two big pictures of the Lord and of sin and of fire being the principal metaphor that helps us to understand what's going on. What are we to do? Well, sometimes I listen to the, the comments and, the, and the, the, the words of others who have counseled me in the ye- years gone by or have come to ask my counsel. And it's interesting how so often we have the whole thing inverted. You see, the way that we overcome the repelling nature of the fire of God is to ask God to increase the attraction, not to decrease the repulsion. You ask God to increase in you, increase in us, the attraction of what it would be like to be consumed by His holiness, overwhelmed by His grace, set on fire with His love. And if that meant that things that needed to be consumed in us were consumed, then all to the good. And so we ask for the attracting power of God's presence to increase in us. And with sin, do we ask that God's work in us causes sin to be less attractive? It never works. You're never gonna get a really great answer to prayer if you're sitting on the internet saying, make sin less attractive doesn't work like that. What you do is you say, make it more repellent. Make it more revolting. Make it so that the the repulsive nature of sin grows in me so that the attraction diminishes. So with the Lord, we ask that the attraction increases, that we press in beyond our natural tendencies to step back from the holiness of God. And we find ourselves revived. And with sin, we ask that the repulsion of sin and the reality of sin in all of its graphic reality would grow in us so that its attraction diminishes. Listen carefully, friends. If you do this, your life will utterly change. Your life will utterly change. If sin becomes more repulsive and God becomes more attractive then everything changes. John says, he will come and will baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we're asking him to do that. And as he does that, to do this work in us that only he can do, and as he does that, then the preparation that John was sent to proclaim becomes the preparation that's taking place in our lives, that the wandering ceases, that the valleys are filled, that the mountains are brought low, that we have a level place to welcome the visitation of the King. I wonder what that would look like on... Labor Day Monday, if such revival came to us. But like I said at the beginning, maybe you feel like you're great, you're good. Read your Bible, go to church, go to heaven, it's awesome. Or maybe the Lord is saying something to you today about the reviving work of God and how he might become more attractive to you and the ways of sin more repellent. Well, it's not a light word, is it, today? It's not an easy word today. It's a strong word. And I I know that there are those in the congregation who'd like me to say the same thing every week and would like me to kind of present particular components of the gospel every week in a particular way. I, I understand that. My own conviction is this, that as the one who's been sent here to teach you, the best that I can do is to preach the next passage in the scripture that the Lord has given us. And this passage this week is a sober passage, is a serious word, and a word for us to deeply consider. And so as I ask Danny to come and lead us in our final time of worship, this is is what I'm asking you to think through. And I'm asking you because I believe that this is the Lord speaking to you very clearly and directly. In what ways do you need to ask the Lord for his attractive, to grow in your life? And what ways do you need to ask the Lord for the repulsion of sin to grow in your life? For me, in the first service, I felt like I had to respond just like any other member of the congregation. So I came and knelt at the front with others as we made this an altar to the Lord where we presented ourselves as living sacrifices. I'd encourage you to do the same. In the same way that the Lord is using all of the different ways to communicate with you as He he speaks to you, as He impresses upon you, as He reveals to you. Then reveal to the Lord with the demonstration of your body and with the intention of your life that you want the attraction of his presence to grow. And you want the repulsion of sin to increase. And perhaps today is a day when you have to consider that you come forward and you pray and you say to the Lord, this is a word for me today, Lord, because I may be revived, but I need more revival. Amen.